Hello, and welcome to this episode of Asian World Podcast with Dr. Michael Hawkins. Today, we'll discuss the foundations of Southeast Asian culture, part one. For those of us in the field, Southeast Asia is often affectionately known as the world's digestive organ. The reason for this is because historically, waves of cultural influence have washed over the region, but each one has been selectively adopted, adapted, metabolized, and rendered up as something distinctly Southeast Asian. This is largely due to two overarching cultural prisms which mediate and dictate much of Southeast Asian culture. The first of these is patron clientism. If you want to understand Southeast Asia, everything from politics to love to family structure to commerce, you have to understand what patron clientism is and how it works in Southeast Asia. Now, a lot of you are probably more familiar with this than you think. So much of the world runs on this system, now and historically, including its greatest empires. Rome, the Mongols, the great caliphates, all ran on patron clientism. So what patron clientism is, is a non-institutional system of social organization where power is derived from accumulating social debt. What that means is that a powerful figure provides patronage in the form of favors, influence, or opportunity, and thereby accrues social debt from community members. These community members are then expected to repay their debts to the patron when called upon in the form of labor, service, fighting, to provide, even to vote. Most of us are probably familiar with it, actually, in the form of the Italian mafia in the United States. When Italian immigrants came to the eastern seaboard, a lot of them didn't have a lot of trust for the institutions that were, which were often controlled by ethnic rivals, Irish, Anglo, or Jewish, And so what happened is these Italian immigrants fell back on the systems of the old country, which go all the way back to Rome, which is a system of patron clientism, meaning that in these Italian neighborhoods, you would get a patron, a powerful person that would provide opportunities, would provide protection, would provide sustenance. And in return, people would pay homage and owe social debt to the patron. Most of you have probably seen it in movies. If you've ever seen The Godfather, for example, in that first scene, The godfather on the day of his daughter's wedding, he's not yet out hobnobbing with the people. He's in his office and he's receiving guests one at a time. And if you watch it closely, the guests come in, they pay their respects to the godfather, and then they ask him for a favor. As he's considering the favor, he's kind of considering connections. He's considering their social credit worthiness. And if he deems them worthy, he grants the favor. And then on their way out, Tom Hagen puts his arm around him and says, look, godfather has done you a favor. And one day he's going to call upon you to repay that favor. And you don't know when that day is going to come, but when he does, you're expected to repay. If you've ever seen Goodfellas, right? It shows a good structure there. Polly is the one that provides all of the opportunity. He provides the protection. He provides the structure. And so when anybody gets anything, they kick up to Polly. Now, it's kind of unfortunate that we have come to know this through depictions of the Italian mafia, because in some ways it's one of the best social political systems human beings have ever come up with. And the reason for this is because it hits such a sweet spot. Patron clientism is kind of the perfect balance of authoritarianism and inherent democracy. On the one hand, the patron is the big man. He's the powerful man. He can make authoritarian unilateral decisions. He can protect his people. He can provide for his people. He can fight. He can do all the things necessary for unilateral decision-making. On the other hand, Patron clientism is also inherently democratic in the sense that I give my loyalty to a patron in as much as he upholds his end of the bargain. 
And so the minute a patron can no longer provide, protect, give opportunity to clients is when I go find another patron that's better able to provide for me. And so a patron, even though he has authoritarian dimensions, can never exceed those dimensions into oppression because the clients will simply go to someone else who's better able to protect them and provide for them. And so the beauty of the system is that each side, the patron and the client, it's in their best interest to uphold the social bargain. And so patrons are always very concerned that they look good in the eyes of their client. So in Southeast Asia, this is the fundamental basis of all social interaction, everything from family to commerce to politics, you name it. If you want to understand Southeast Asia, patron clientism is where you begin. And so the question for us is really, what is a big man? You know, what's a patron? What does it take to become a patron? Well, many years ago, there was a historian and a former civil servant in Malaya, British Malaya, named O.W. Walters. And O.W. Walters went around and he tried to figure out exactly what the requisite qualities of a big man were. And this has become known as the big man or man of prowess theory of politics in Southeast Asia. And it's just the identifying features of a patron. And so it's worth our time to go through them. Number one, a big man has to be spiritual. Now, by that, what I mean is a big man has to have some kind of access to the other side. He has to be able to communicate with ancestors or spirits. He needs to be somewhat clairvoyant, seeing through the veil between this world and the next. And the reason this is important is because those that enjoy this clairvoyance, those that are in tune with the spiritual world, can see things coming a second before they happen. The gift of spirituality is foreknowledge. And so if a big man is spiritual, naturally as a client, I want to align myself with him. He's going to see things coming, either danger or opportunity or whatever it might be. And so by becoming spiritual, by being in tune with the supernatural world, a big man is able to convince his followers that he has knowledge that other patrons don't. Second, a big man has to be pious. Now, this is closely related with spirituality, but they're not the same thing. Piety is the outward observation of the standards and rituals of the dominant religion, right? So in Southeast Asia, it's if you're a Muslim, you fast during Ramadan, you've gone on Hajj, you observe the five pillars. If you're Christian in the Philippines, give generously to the church. Uh, you make sure to perform all of the sacraments. If you're Buddhist, you ordain. If you're animistic, you perform all the various rites. And the reason this is important to be visibly outwardly pious is because if you are, there's no danger of you enraging the gods, whatever those gods might be. And so if I'm a client and I look at my pious patron, however powerful he might be, the gods are infinitely more powerful than him. And so if he gains the favor of the gods, if he's always on their good side by remaining pious, then my confidence in the patron grows and it's not compromised. And so those two things are important right off the bat. He has to be spiritual. And he has to be pious. Third, a big man has to be a charismatic. Now, what I mean by this is a big man has to be a force of personality. He has to be someone that people inherently listen to. So when the big man walks into the room, everybody's quiet because everybody wants to hear what he's got to say. And they want to hear what he's got to say because he sees the world from a slightly different angle. He sees things in a way that other people don't. And so a big man is this force of personality, this, this dynamic problem solver. 
And so a lot of the big men, a lot of the patrons in Southeast Asia actually got their start as arbiters. Meaning that if the two clans, if there are two clans that have a feud, rather than fighting it out, they would oftentimes appeal to an arbiter. And the arbiter could listen to the grievance, he could listen to both sides, and he would see the situation in a way that no one else could. And so he comes up with a solution that's moderately satisfying to all parties involved. And thereby, the two parties owe him social debt. One of the most famous of these arbiters was a young Arab born into a world of clans and patron clientism. And on his way up to power, he became what was known as a hakam, right? Or an arbiter or a judge. His name was Muhammad. And it became incredibly important. And so a big man is an orator. He can communicate. He can see the world. People listen when he talks. Next. A big man has courage in battle. This is extremely important. A big man never leads from behind. I have to know that my patron is going to face the danger first. He's going to stand between his clients and whatever is coming. And so a big man leads from the front. Big man's not afraid of pain. The big man's not afraid of danger. A big man is not afraid of death. And so in Southeast Asia, historically, patrons have often been extremely proud of their scars and they'll wear their scars prominently. There was this great experience I had several years ago. I was in the autonomous region of Muslim Mindanao, and uh, I'll talk about this guy later, but we were guests of the Sultan of Tugaya. And when we went into the arm, he showed up and he brought a couple of bodyguards and he assigned one of the bodyguards to me. It was a guy named Omar. And Omar shows up and he's in full fatigue. He's got all his camouflage on. He's got, his, he's got an M4. <laughs> he's got an American M4. He has a nine millimeter on his hip. And this guy is outfitted. But when we first met, the Sultan introduced us and then he turned to Omar and he said, Hey, I want you to take your shirt off and I want you to pull your pants down. And I said, uh, you know, that's not necessary. That's all right. <laughs> it's, I know him well enough as it is. And the Sultan goes, no, no, no we're going to do it. And so he dutifully takes off his jacket and he takes off his t-shirt and he just pulls his pants down a little bit. And the Sultan then goes up to his body and starts pointing at various scars. And he says, you see this? This was a five, five, six round went clean through. You see this? This is where he was stabbed. You see this? Yeah. He was clipped by a 45. And so he goes all the way through this poor guy's list of tragedies that have occurred to his body. And then when he was done, he says, okay, you can get your clothes back. And I was awkward and speechless and had no idea what to say. But what was happening is the Sultan was showing me, look, you have nothing to worry about. If anything ever goes sideways, we will stand between you and it. Okay, you can trust me because this is a way of building social debt, of placing my trust in a patron, him more than someone else. Now I'll talk about him again a little bit later, but big man has to have courage in battle. No fear of pain, no fear of death. Next, a big man must be favored by the spirits. Now, again, this sort of sounds like spirituality. It sort of sounds like piety, but again, this is different. A big man has to have almost magical abilities. Now, these magical abilities can take a variety of forms. One of the most famous in Southeast Asia is in the form of an amulet or a little talisman. In the Philippines, they call them anting anting. And so a big man has a variety of anting anting that have been blessed, that give him invulnerability, that give him insight, that allow him to communicate with the other side. And so they'll wear anting anting all over. And today, after the adoption of world religions in insular Southeast Asia, these will often take the form of images of saints in the Philippines or crosses or in the Islamic world, a sacred Chris. 
And so there are all kinds of legends in Southeast Asia where a particular amulet in combination with a secret key word could make a patron invulnerable. Or all over insular Southeast Asia in the Islamic world, there are magic chris, the wavy knife that's handed down from generation to generation and the chris can fly, the chris can take life, the chris can give life. All these things incredibly important to see visibly on the big man, that he has magical abilities. He has divine protection, or at least magical protection. Also stories of miraculous survival of the patrons. They were supposed to have drowned, but didn't. They were supposed to have been killed, but didn't. They were struck by lightning, but survived. Big men also important in terms of being favored by the spirits is elixirs. Southeast Asia has an awesome history of elixirs that give invulnerability or virility. One of the most famous, you guys will find this disturbing, but one of the most famous that we find throughout the islands is that if ever there was an opportunity to acquire a fetus, particularly a human fetus, either a woman had a miscarriage or somehow acquired one, a big man would take that fetus and put it in a hollow bamboo tube and pickle it in sugarcane vinegar and seal the top with wax. And then would carry it around his belt. And if ever there was a time where the big man needed energy or he needed protection, he would often poke a hole in that wax and then sip on the essence of the human fetus. And so all these things, again, the purpose is to convince the clientele, you've picked the right guy. He's spiritual. He's pious. He's courageous in battle. He's favored by the spirit. He has magic key words and he has magic elixirs and he has magic amulets. And all these things build confidence. The two most important qualities of a big man by far. Of the top two, a big man must be sexually virile. Potency is absolutely essential for a big man. And so if you go to Southeast Asia, one of the things you'll find both in the islands and on the mainland is phallic symbols everywhere. You will see erect penises from one end of the region to the next. Some are very symbolic, like the Sivalinga in Angkor Wat. Some are much more explicit, like you might find in the Philippines or Indonesia. But the importance of potency in Southeast Asia cannot be overstated. The big man absolutely must be potent. And so the big man must have many mistresses, many wives in some cases, many children. He's able to reproduce and the power of his potency is felt throughout the kingdom. And so many rituals in Southeast Asia, you'll find where you have these phallic symbols that are worn and have water poured over them or rites performed to them. And if a big man ever begins to lose his potency, then the clients immediately move to someone else. It's the worst possible thing that could happen to a big man. And so big men are constantly obsessed with affirming their potency. And this occurs at every level of society. So for example, in Angkor Wat, to work in the temple complex, you had to get witnesses to testify to your potency. So you had to produce a wife, you had to produce a mistress, says, look, he's incredibly potent. We produce these children. According to some reports, if you couldn't produce a witness, in some cases, you had to prove your potency in front of a board. That's how important it was. And so there is no substitute whatsoever. If your potency begins to decline, your clients leave. One of the best examples of this is in the 1960s and 70s and into the 80s, the Philippines had a dictator named Ferdinand Marcos. And Ferdinand Marcos was one of those Cold War dictators that the United States supports but tries to modulate and 
Ferdinand had this beautiful wife, a woman named Imelda, who's somewhat infamous now. But in addition to being married to Imelda, Marcos had a mistress, an American. Her name was Dovey, and she was kind of many Filipinos' fantasy of a kind of blonde, bombshell, American fantasy of a woman. And even though this was somewhat shameful, especially in the eyes of good, believing Catholics, it was absolutely essential to sustaining Marcos's potency in the eyes of the people, particularly as a dictator. And there's all these funny stories about the CIA trying to modulate Marcos's power in the Philippines. And he used to call her his lovey-dovey, I know. <laughs> but in ways that they assumed would compromise his potency. But every time they did, it simply reminded the people of the Philippines that Marcos was still incredibly potent. Even though he was suffering pretty severely from lupus later on in his life. When I do consulting for the military, I often ask them in jest. I tell a story like this. I'm like, you guys ever read books? Did you ever go try to figure out what the dynamics were? Because <laughs> apparently they weren't. And so oftentimes they, trying to modulate Marcos down, would boost his popularity among the people by affirming his potency of not only having a beautiful Filipino wife, but also having a beautiful foreign mistress. So no matter what, sexual virility and potency. And finally, last, and this may be the most important, a big man has to have an entourage. A big man has to create what is called the theater state. He has to have the symbols of power surrounding him. And so a big man has to have a crew outfitted with weapons, outfitted with exotic items. Back in the old days on the mainland, it could be elephants. It could be exotic creatures, anything rare or curious. The big man acquired is a symbol of his power and status. And so in Southeast Asia, traditionally, there's a huge premium on anything albino. If you could get an albino animal or you could get an albino person, people with interesting or what some would classify as abnormal physical manifestations. In particular, one of the things that were very important to big men throughout the region in Southeast Asia is dwarfism. If someone had dwarfism, you definitely want to be in the patron's court. And so what this entourage does is it announces my power. It announces my wealth. And this is true of any patronage system. Even in the United States, where some of you might be more familiar, one of the things that Martin Scorsese kind of makes fun of, if you watch Goodfellas, is he makes fun of Henry Hill when he gets a little bit of money. He immediately becomes garish. He buys these outrageous suits. His crew buys pink cars and furs, and uh, he outfits his house with all of this gaudy plastic interior design. And people smirk at that, but there's meaning to that. The meaning is I'm producing an entourage. I'm producing a vision. My shoes, my pinky ring, my bracelets, my car, my crew. And in Southeast Asia, it's no different. Whereas once upon a time, it was war elephants and exotic creatures. Today, it's SUVs and expensive shoes and the latest technologies. And this is the way that patronage works. Because if I am in need of help, if I am in a desperate situation, I'm constantly on alert for whoever can best provide for me. Who do I want to be indebted to? Who's my best bet? Well, it's a competition among the powerful men to prove to you that they are the best bet. And that's how patron clientism works. And that's what makes a big man. 
Now, because this is the case, it creates a kind of spatialization of power in Southeast Asia that is odd to us in the West. So in the West, when we think of power, we often think of delineated geographies, right? Jurisdiction. So my power runs from the river to the mountain to the ocean, or my jurisdiction goes from 30th street to first street. In Southeast Asia, this is not the case because of patron clientism. Power in Southeast Asia from big men within the system consists of a series of concentric circles radiating outward and varying in intensity. It's often equated with an index symbol that they adopted to kind of explain the phenomenon from India known as the mandala, right? And this mandala is this complex concentric circle piece of art that radiates outward. And the mandala in Southeast Asia, the spatialization of power is how the big man's influence and social debt radiates from himself out into space. And so they're pulsating. The mandalas are constantly expanding and retracting and rubbing against each other and overlapping with each other. And so what the mandala consists of is essentially a core, and this is where the big man is, and so it consists of his household, his crew, people over which he has direct control, direct command, people which owe him everything they have, livelihood, kinship, where he is most powerful. If you ever shine a flashlight on the wall... And you can see sort of the circles of light where it's most intense in the middle. And then it's a circle of brightness and a circle of less brightness. And then there's just kind of ambient light that fills up the room. And this is exactly how power works in the mandala. And so outside of the family, outside of the core, outside of his household and his immediate crew, we have a community zone. And these are the people that the big man encounters on a daily basis. There are people that buy and that sell and that provide services and people he grew up with or people that have moved into the immediate community. And they will have daily, if not a couple times a week, contact with the patron. And so again, he does a lot of favors. He knows them. He knows their children. He knows their situation. He knows their needs. They're immediately available if he needs to call upon them to repay their social debt. And so again, if you've seen The Godfather 2, there's a really great depiction of the Don of the Godfather walking down the streets of Brooklyn and people coming up and kissing his ring and telling him, good morning, Godfather. And here's an apple and here's this and here's that because he is the patron, right? He's the patron of the community. And that would be in the community zone. People, which he does favors for every day and people which owe him, but it's not immediately under his control. Beyond the community zone, you have what's called the tributary zone. And in the tributary zone, these are people that have sort of extended network connections with the big man. So if I'm a farmer several miles out, maybe the big man agrees to buy my crop. Or when enemies come, I can run to the big man for shelter. But we don't have daily contact, but I know who my patron is. And I know who I need to run to and I know who I need to pay back. And therefore, if I get a windfall, I know who to kick up to. And I want to make sure that I maintain this social relationship between me and him. Now, this tributary zone is an interesting zone because it's far away from the big man. And because his influence is less, it's also up for grabs for other big men. And so another patron might come and say, hey, how much is he paying you for that? You know what? I'll pay you three cents more a bushel. Or, you know, he is getting weak and and I think he's vulnerable. If you get into trouble, you run to me. I can guarantee that I can protect you. And so the beauty of the tributary zone and really the beauty of the system entire 
is that it's kind of the ideal social welfare system. If everyone plays the patronage game, if everyone observes their obligations, if the patrons provide and the clients kick up, everyone is taken care of. Everyone is subsumed within the system. The reason it's had such incredible lasting power is because it is this perfect system of social welfare where everyone can participate. And the big man wants as many clients as possible. And the clients want as powerful a big man as they can acquire as well. And so it very naturally seeps into the cracks and crevices of every institution that's been laid over it. Whether it come from India, from the Arab world, whether it came from Western imperialism, whatever it is, it's all filtered through this particular system. There's a great case study of this, which I'll do in another lecture about the Spanish conquest of the Philippines through friars. And the friars essentially learn how to participate in patron clientism and effectively facilitate a conquest of the Philippines that's by and large nonviolent. But everything that comes is filtered through this prism. Well, beyond the tributary zone, theoretically, a big man's mandala extends as far and wide as his name is known. So if I'm a big man, if I'm a patron, and my name is spoken in Kathmandu, then my mandala theoretically extends to Kathmandu. You say my name on Mars, and my mandala extends to Mars. Wherever my influence is known, wherever I am spoken of, in ways that would encourage people to seek me out for patronage, that is my mandala. And so the frustrating thing for Western imperialists is when they get to Southeast Asia, there's no jurisdiction. So if you asked a chieftain or a datu, what exactly is your area of power? There's no way to answer that question. Well, people owe me favors over here and they owe me favors over here and the mandala expands and it contracts and it overlaps with this other guy's mandala. And so it becomes extremely difficult for Western imperialists to really nail down any established power structures in the region. Now that's for big men, but the same applies to each and every individual in Southeast Asia. That is to say, every person in Southeast Asia has a personal mandala. Every person in Southeast Asia, within their families, within the community, within business, within politics, within religion, is trying to do two things. They're trying to expand their mandala horizontally, and they're trying to expand their mandala vertically. Now, what I mean by this is no matter who you are, you are looking to do a favor for someone else. You're looking to accrue social debt in some form. Even if you're low, even if your status is extremely low in the community, you're still looking to accrue social debt where people would owe you a favor. And likewise, I want my mandala to go up vertically, meaning no matter how powerful I am, I still am seeking a patron above me. You never want to be the guy on top. That's a precarious and vulnerable and scary place to be. Uh, there was some great work done on sort of tracing the word of freedom in the Philippines, which is kalayaan. And what it actually means is not the Western sense of I'm independent, get out of my way, don't tell me what to do. But the idea that you are so securely embedded in a patron-client system where I always have people above me that can help me if I'm in need and I always have people below me that can kick up, only then am I truly free. And so each of us in Southeast Asia is looking to expand. I'm always looking to go up and I'm always looking for people to accrue social debt below. This in part helps explain why Southeast Asia is often known as the friendliest place on earth. Now, it's naturally friendly. 
it's wonderful. If you haven't been, go change your life. One of my most cherished places on the planet. I love every inch of it. But part of it is that it's the friendliest place on earth because of this principle. And so in Southeast Asia, whenever you meet someone new, you're meeting them again for the, the second time. It's somebody you've known for a long time. You always want to establish those connections. I am always looking to build bridges, to build good feelings, to, to do favors, to establish friendships because everyone is a potential patron and everyone is a potential client. Now, on the extreme end, this can lead to some really funny instances that seem almost surreal. For example, a number of years ago, I had a, a good friend and she was in a jeepney up in the mountains and she was, I think they were Peace Corps, but there was a bunch of them in the Peace Corps and they're driving along. And in the mountains of the Philippines, there's a rebel group called the NPA, sort of Marxists, but they have a lot of other complex concerns. And uh, as they're driving along in the mountains, uh, these NPA soldiers had felled a tree and stopped the jeepney. And when they did, a couple of bandits jumped onto the jeepney. They pulled out guns and they said, everybody put your stuff into the bag and nobody gets hurt. And so all these terrified Americans and Filipinos are taking their stuff and they're putting it in the bag. And as the bandits are going to leave, this one impetuous American, for whatever reason, speaks up and says, hey, I'm so, so sorry. Please don't hurt me. But I have a flight tomorrow. I have to have my passport. Look, you can keep my money, whatever. But I need my passport. And according to the story, the bandits kind of look at each other and they're like, uh, okay. And so one of the bandits reaches in the bag, pulls out a document, hands it to him. And the guy, again, terrified he's about to die, says, look, I am so, so sorry. Number one, this isn't a passport. Number two, this isn't mine. And so the bandits look at each other again. They're like, well, I don't. All right. Yeah, they go to the American. They open the bag. They say, okay, look. Uh, I don't know what a passport is. You reach in here, you grab your passport. How about that? The guy goes, yes, thank you so much. And he kind of rummages through and he reaches in the checks and he gets his passport. He's like, thank you. Thank you so much. He goes, I won't forget this. And the bandits look at everybody else. and They're like, does anybody else need their passports? And of course, everybody raises their hand. They're like, all right, all right, let's get the passports out. Get them all the passports. And they kind of give out the passports to everybody. And then they sling the bag over the shoulder. They look at point guns and they say, all right, nobody move. We'll blow your heads off. And they jump out of the jeepney. And everybody's sitting there blinking and stunned and has no idea what just happened. But it does make sense if you think about this. Even in the extreme threatening moment of a robbery, they're still maintaining a thread of social debt. You did them a favor. Now, look, everything goes horrible. They get pinched. They end up in the courts. They go to testify. Yeah, they tried to rob us. But, right? And that but is that thread of social debt, but he was pretty nice. I mean, he gave my passport back. I was able to get home back to my family and you know, he's not all bad. And that feeling, that feeling of making that confession, that feeling of saying like, look, he at least did this for me. That compulsion is you fulfilling your social debt. He did you a favor. You feel obligated to at the very least mention it and perhaps ameliorate his sentence somewhat. And so no matter how extreme the circumstance, Always maintain that social debt. In the Philippines, they have a beautiful term for this. In the Philippines, it's known as utang na laob. Utang means debt, and your laob is your interior self. And so sometimes it's translated as debt of the soul. And your utang na laob is your social debt that you owe to people around you. Now, some of it you can never repay. So, for example, my utang na laob to my parents can never be repaid. They gave me life. No matter how bad, 
my parents might be, my parents are great, but if you had bad parents, no matter how bad they might be, you always have utang nila ob. You always have to fulfill that. Uh, you also have utang nila ob that can't be repaid to certain religious figures. And again, when I talk about the conquest of the Philippines, this will be super interesting in terms of fulfilling your utang nila ob. But you also owe a debt of your soul to small favors. The guy that gave your passport back. The person that did any small kindness. It creates a debt of my soul. And if I am going to feel right with the world, I have to fulfill the debt. The worst thing that you can do in Southeast Asia, the worst thing you can do in Southeast Asia is not fulfill your social debt. Again, in the Philippines, they have this wonderful phrase. If one fails to fulfill their social debt, they say, right? You have no shame is how it's translated, but it's not a Western sense of shame. It's a sense of you are not fulfilling your social debt, which means the entire system is threatened by you. And if you do it enough, you effectively commit social suicide. If I transgress, if I fail to fulfill my utang nila ob, if I fail to pay my social debts, no patron will touch me. I will be socially dead. And in Southeast Asia, historically, this quickly is followed by physical death. No one to protect me. No one to provide for me. No one to provide opportunity, marriage, whatever it might be. Because this guy's not going to fulfill his debts. He doesn't want to participate in the system. And when I don't, the whole thing comes down. Maybe one of the best examples of the mandala in action was an experience I had several years ago. I was on a Fulbright in the Southern Philippines. And um, to do my research, I needed to get into an area called the Autonomous Region of Muslim Mindanao. And it's a, an area that's been set off by the government as a kind of jurisdiction for Muslims in the Southern Philippines. And if I could think of something that's probably the best comparable example, it's, it's, it's very much like a, an Indian reservation in the United States. Um, so they're still overseen by the federal government. However, they can have their own courts. They can have their police. They can have their own school system. The problem is that the autonomous region of Muslim Mindanao, also called the arm, is plagued with poverty, violence, and neglect, and abuses by the state in some cases. And so it can be a little bit of a dangerous place to be sometimes. And so in order to do my research, though, I, ne I needed to go. And so by pure chance... Or some would say not by chance. In Manila, I met the Sultan of Togaya. And uh, we happened to be introduced through a mutual friend. Uh, he was in Manila at the time conducting some business. He had his cousin with him who was affectionately known as Doc. He was a lawyer. And we had dinner together and absolutely hit it off famously. Uh, we became instant friends. I told him about what I was doing. He was super excited about it. He said, this is great. I, I, I want people to know about Mindanao. I want them to know what's going on here. I want our history to be told. Uh, God has brought us together and this is meant to be. And so we sat down and we made this plan and he said, you, you can move down to Cagayan de Oro and you can rent my house, which we did in Cagayan de Oro. And then we can just make forays into the arm whenever you want to. And I'll take you around all the mosques and uh, we can go to Mindanao State University in Marawi and we could just do all your research. Now I'm euphoric. I didn't think in a million years I'd have this kind of an opportunity. And so I said, absolutely. Where do I sign? Let's do this contract. And so I rented his house, moved down to Mindanao. And when I did, I got down there and in the midst of my excitement, I'm suddenly thinking to myself, okay, what does he want from me? What do I need to do here? 
Well, the Sultan, as were many leaders in the arm at this time, it was during the war on terror. They were extremely excited about the presence of the U.S. military. And the U.S. military on the ground was doing two things that they liked. Number one, they were providing humanitarian service, so medicine and food and all kinds of other things. And number two, the U.S. military was sort of moderating some of the abuses, right? So the U.S. military is helping to keep, in conjunction with the Philippine state, Islamic terror groups out of the region, but also to sort of, in some ways, make the Philippine military behave. And the Sultan was adamant that he wanted the U.S. military in Mindanao. He wanted them to know about what was going on, and he, he wanted American patronage. This goes all the way back to the American military period in the Philippines from 1899 to 1914. It's a subject of my book. You want to read my book. Anyway, he was super excited. And so when I get down there, he shows up. As I said, he's got the bodyguards. He's got his crew. He's got his SUVs. Uh, he's got everything ready to go. He's like, we'll do whatever you want. Let's go do this. And I said, okay, let's, let's go. And then came the ask. And he says, Mike, here's what I'm going to need from you. Wherever you go and whatever you do, I want you to say my name. And I, at the time was like, yeah, I can do that. He's like, no, I'm serious. When you lecture, when you give testimony before any government body, when you work with the military, when you talk to strangers and students, I want you to say my name. Now, I didn't realize it at the time, but what he's saying to me is, I need you to help me do two things. I need you to help me extend my mandala vertically, and I need you to help me extend my mandala horizontally. Meaning, I want you to say my name so I can acquire more clients, and I want you to say my name so I can acquire more patrons, in this case, in the United States government. Allah, this podcast. And every, every year I give the same lecture and I say his name dutifully to all of my students. Well, as we get ready to leave, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can handle that. And he's like, okay, no. Well, uh, before we go, I need you to email the embassy and here's what I want you to say. He goes, I want you to tell them that you are with the Sultan of Tugaya, that I love America, that I love the American military. Tell them that I am your father and that I love you. And that we're having a great time down here. And this is extremely important work. And I go, okay, so here's where this gets awkward. You bet on the wrong guy. I'm a nobody. Okay. So at the time I was, uh, ABD was on a Fulbright, was trying to write my dissertation. I didn't know anybody at the embassy. I didn't know anybody anywhere. And so I tried to tell him this. I, I wanted to be honest. I said, look, I, I don't know anybody of consequence and I wouldn't even know who to mail to email at the embassy. I, I don't know. And he's like, well, you need to figure it out because, uh, you know, we're not going to go do this thing unless you do. And I would kind of go back and forth. I would tell him, I don't know. I don't know. And, I, and then eventually I would shoot off an email. We'd be in his office and I'd shoot off an email to PAF, which is the Philippine American Educational Foundation. So they're the ones that kind of administered the Fulbright. They gave me my money and we met for a Christmas party and it's a bunch of great people. And so I would send him this email and he would be there right with me looking over over my shoulder to make sure I had all the words correct. And I would say, look, I'm with him. He loves America. I love him. We have a great time together. I'd send it off. He's like, all right, let's go. And so we'd take off. Of course, I would get emails a couple of weeks later from Pi F that were super confused. You know, they're just like, hey, you know, you don't need to update us as much as you're updating us. And I hope you guys are happy down there. You sound like you're getting along well. And I, I just emailed it. Look, I'll tell you at Christmas. I'll explain it at Christmas. And so then we would go into the arm. Now, when we would go into the arm, he would go into full entourage mode. And so 
He would take us to various places. Uh, he would introduce me to the most powerful people. He had his crew the entire time. We'd go into a restaurant. He'd spread his money around. And again, by sort of conservative American estimation, you'd say, this guy's a little, seems much, right? It seems a little much. But again, if you want to translate it to something you're more familiar with, think of the Italian Don walking into a club, right? Tipping everybody huge, big entrance, table up front. You want to show everyone how powerful you are. And so he was showing me exactly how he was going to do this. And then I would fulfill my utang my social debt to him by saying his name, which I'm doing right now. In addition, though, it was kind of interesting as he's playing this game with looking for patrons through me, but also I'm a client of his. And now he's also looking for clients, which he now has, because if you're listening to this podcast or you've been in my class and by chance you want to go into the autonomous region of Muslim Mindanao, who are you looking for to help you? Who are you looking for that's going to patronize you? And so the Sultan's mandala has now extended to wherever you're listening to your phone right now. But he was aspiring up as far as he would too. So uh, I was in the, the Philippines on my Fulbright in 2008. In 2008, there was this sort of young, dynamic, exciting presidential candidate out of Chicago named Barack Obama. And everybody in Muslim Mindanao was over the moon. They were all convinced that he was a Muslim. And um, so I'd be in the mosques and they'd say, well, aren't you excited to have the first Muslim president? And I was like, I don't, I don't know that he is. And they said, yeah, well, you know, he is. And I go, well, I think he's gone out of his way to, to establish that he's not. And they're like, yeah, but he's got to do that. And you know that he is. And I go, I don't know. And they're like, look, accept it. He is. And so I said, okay. So there's this really funny newspaper headline on the day he was elected America's first Muslim president. So they really, really liked him. Well, the Sultan many, 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 many dozens of times would email the Barack Obama campaign. And in it, he said all kinds of, you know, I love you. I'm so excited. This is the beginning of a new era. I am your man. I am your servant. Uh, you know, I'll do whatever you need. You just call upon me. If you ever need anything done in the Philippines, you let me know. And he would crack these emails off to the Obama campaign. Now, I don't know if you've ever written to a campaign or a senator or whatever, but they don't read them. You know, I, I like to think they do, but they don't. And so they send back these form letters, right? So you write your senator and you say, hey, I'm really concerned about inflation. And then you get an email back and it says, yeah, senator's real concerned about flag burning too. And you go, he didn't read my thing. And so the Obama campaign would send back these form emails to him that would just say, you know, hope and change. And if you'd like to donate, hit this link or whatever. And when he got these emails, the Sultan would print them off, frame them and hang them up in his office. And there were walls covered with them. Now, did he really believe he was communicating with Barack Obama. I don't think so. But you see the double purpose here? If someone walks into his office on his wall, he has evidence that he's communicating with, in their minds, the most powerful Muslim in, in the world. And so you're impressed, right? I want to ally myself with this guy. He's connected. He has access to power. He has access to influence. On the other hand, if one of those emails sneaks through to a staffer, sneaks through to anybody, when the Obama administration was thinking policy in the Philippines, the first name that pops into their mind, the Sultan of Dubai. And so he's expertly expanding this mandala up and down, out and every relationship in the Philippines. All of your social dynamics, again, the most intimate within your family and the widest with strangers you meet on the street. If you want to understand how the region works, it's simply this. Thank you.
I'm Dr. Michael Hawkins. Thank you for joining us on this exploration of the Asian world. Subscribe to Asian World Podcasts wherever you get your podcast, and share this episode with friends and family who share your passion for history. For more, please check out my published works, including books by Northern Illinois University Press and Cornell University Press. Join us again as we continue to unravel the mysteries and celebrate the wonders of the Asian world. Podcast recording and mixing by Weberized Podcast Productions. Thank you.